Hey guys, just a quick one before we start this episode. I wanted to talk to you about an amazing online educational platform called Brilliant. Brilliant is an online learning platform with some incredible and unique content targeted for STEM education and that's science, technology, engineering and mathematics. The combination of high quality courses, creative learning design and beginner friendliness makes it very appealing for all students. The user interface is very modern and they offer a 7 day free trial free trial for you to test it out. Now their catalogue currently features more than 60 courses on subjects as varied as neural networks, solar energy and cryptocurrency. All the lessons taught come with interactive exercises, quizzes and daily challenges, all to keep the students of Brilliant as engaged with the materials as possible. To learn more about Brilliant, simply click the link in the episode bio and revolutionise your way of learning. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Finals Countdown series which is brought to you by MedTalks. Now in today's talk we're still in the gastroenterology section and we'll be going through a condition, a rare condition called Wilson's disease. So before we get into this episode I'd like to just take a moment to talk about the sponsors and they are Wesleyan. Now Wesleyan is a company that was set up way back in 1841 and they provide tailored financial advice and products to multiple professional groups including doctors, dentists and teachers. I'd like to just touch on Wesleyan's latest project called The Next Step. The Next Step is born from the Wesleyan tradition of giving back. Built in collaboration with final year students, The Next Step brings together some of the brightest sparks in medicine for live events, workshops, exam resources, contents and podcasts to make the step into F1 a little easier. They address subject matter you didn't know that you needed to know. So go on over and follow them on Instagram by searching at the Wes Next Step or Facebook by searching the Next Step hyphen Wesleyan or visit their website which is the nextstep.wesleyan.co.uk. Okay, now back to the episode. All about Wilson's disease. So Wilson's disease is an autosomal recessive disorder which involves the excessive deposition of copper inside tissues throughout the body. Now, as it's autosomal recessive, this means that people only develop Wilson's disease if they have a faulty gene from both mum and dad. In terms of the pathophysiology, the excess copper deposition occurs as a result of mutations in the ATP7B gene, which is located on chromosome 13. This gene actually encodes an enzyme called the ATPase enzyme, also known as the Wilson's ATPase, which is found within hepatocytes or liver cells, and its role is to move copper across intracellular membranes. This transport of copper across cell membranes is supported by the production of peroxidase ceruloplasmin, where copper is incorporated, coupled with excretion of copper into bile. So in Wilson's disease, the serum copper concentrations are low and hepatic concentrations are too high, which causes the liver toxicity and leads to the presentation that we will discuss shortly. So why do we care about copper so much? So copper is needed for numerous body functions. Mainly its role is as a cofactor for several enzymes. So now let's go through some statistics. Wilson's disease has a prevalence of approximately 1 in 30,000 to 100,000, so it's very rare, 
and its usual onset is between the age of 5 and 35 years old, typically the second and third decades of life. Now let's look at the clinical presentation, so how does Wilson's disease manifest itself? Now any child or young adult with unexplained liver abnormalities and movement disorders, one should consider Wilson's disease. In children and adolescents, Wilson's usually presents with liver abnormalities and as neuropsychiatric disease in young adults. So we've explained why liver damage occurs in Wilson's, but let's go through the clinical features. Some may present with asymptomatic hepatomegaly or elevation of serum transaminases or LFTs particularly ALT and AST. And if patients are symptomatic, then the following may be seen. Firstly, fatigue, lack of appetite, an increased bleeding tendency, and this is because the liver produces clotting factors, and if the liver is not working properly, it won't be producing clotting factors, which can increase the risk of bleeding. Confusion, and this is due to hepatic encephalopathy. So, Hepatic encephalopathy is a nervous system disorder which is brought on by severe liver disease. When the liver is not working properly, there are toxins such as ammonia and glutamine that build up within the blood and these travel to the brain and can affect brain function. And so people with hepatic encephalopathy can often seem very confused. Portal hypertension, secondary to liver cirrhosis, and this can lead to esophageal varices, which may be um, manifested by hematemesis. And there is a separate talk on portal hypertension and esophageal varices to come. So one consequence of liver disease, liver cirrhosis, can be portal hypertension, where there is an increase in the blood pressure in the portal vein, which carries the blood from the bowel and the spleen back to the liver. So the pressure in the portal vein may rise because there is a blockage, such as a blood clot, or because the resistance in the liver is increased due to scarring or fibrosis or liver cirrhosis. As a result, the pressure in the portal vein rises, and this is what's called portal hypertension. Other clinical features may be ascites, so this is excessive buildup of fluid within the abdominal cavity, enlargement of the spleen or splenomegaly, and as we've already touched on, so cirrhosis and severe liver failure. A few signs that you might want to look out for on examination are spider nevi, and these are small distended blood vessels, usually on the chest, which are a, a sign of liver disease. Again, yellowing of the skin and sclera or jaundice, confusion, ascites, as we've already mentioned. So those are the hepatic features. Now let's discuss some of the neuropsychiatric features. And again, these occur due to the intracellular buildup of copper within organs. And obviously, in this case, we're talking about the brain. The most common early neurological sign of Wilson's disease is an asymmetrical tremor. This occurs in about 50% of patients. It's a characteristic wing-beating tremor, which is absent at rest, but can be provoked by abducting, so abducting the arms and flexing the elbows towards the midline. Patients may also have difficulty in speaking, ataxia or lack of coordination, a mask-like faces, clumsiness with their hands, disturbances of gait. They may manifest features of Parkinson's, so bradykinesia, bradykinesia slow movement, cogwheel rigidity, also dystonia, excess salivation, seizures, migraines, and personality changes, and also depression, psychosis, and anxiety. These are all some of the neuropsychiatric features 
that can present in Wilson's disease. Wilson's disease can also affect the eyes. The most common ophthalmological feature is the Kaiser Fischer ring, which is present in about 95% of symptomatic people. This is a green-brown ring on the cornea, which may be visible to the naked eye or via an ophthalmoscope, but usually a slit lamp examination is required. Now, it's important to note that this is not pathognomonic, as it can occur in other conditions such as primary sclerosing cholangitis and primary biliary cholangitis, which are both talks that we've discussed previously, so go and check those ones out if you haven't already done so. Another feature is a sunflower cataract, which is only visible via a slit, slit lamp examination. This is due to copper deposition in the lens, which causes a greenish central disc in the anterior capsule with some radial cortical opacities. Other features of Wilson's include osteopenia, osteoarthritis due to copper deposition within the bones and the joints, myopathy, cardiac arrhythmias and cardiomyopathy due to effect on copper in the heart. This may lead to heart failure and also things like infertility and pancreatitis. So how do we detect Wilson's disease? Initially, there is evaluation of clinical and lab features. So, for example, the presence of Kaiser Fleischer rings and low ceruloplasmin. So, ceruloplasmin is the copper-carrying protein within the blood. And levels of this protein are low in Wilson's disease. Other biochemical results include an elevated basal 24-hour urinary excretion of copper, which essentially signifies that there are elevated levels um, due to this enzyme mutation. There is increased hepatic parenchymal copper concentration, so in other words saying that there's copper deposition within the blood. And there are deranged LFTs, mainly the ALT and AST, which is as a result of damage to the liver due to the buildup of copper. In terms of further investigations, a liver biopsy is only really required if the clinical signs and the blood or urine tests do not give a definitive, definitive diagnosis. If patients had an MRI scan, they may have lesions at, site with, at sites compatible with neurological features, and it may show the characteristic face of the giant panda sign, which I'd recommend that you look up now. An ECG may show cardiac involvement, so it may show arrhythmias, and there's also, it's important to do family screening of first-degree relatives. So the chances of siblings having Wilson's disease would be 25%. And the screening involves genetic analysis of the ATP7B gene found on chromosome 13. Okay, so now let's move on to the management. How do we manage patients with Wilson's disease? So it is treatable, and the aim is to reduce the excess copper concentrations from the body. Now, asymptomatic patients are treated as the copper buildup can cause long-term damage. The initial non-pharmacological interventions include close monitoring of renal, hepatic function, full blood count and clotting factors, avoidance of alcohol and drugs that can worsen hepatic function, avoidance of food which are high in copper, so chocolate, nuts, mushrooms, shellfish, particularly lobster, an annual slit lamp examination of the Kaiser Fleischer rings, which and fading or disappearance correlates with copper levels, and then specialist follow-up. Now, now on to the pharmacological management. So the first line management is a medication called penicillamine. Now this is a copper chelating agent which forms soluble complexes with metals within the body 
and it gets excreted in the urine. Now, the issue with penicillamine is that it can cause significant adverse effects, such as skin disorders, nephropathy, a lupus-like inflammatory disorder, and suppression of the bone marrow. And often patients may have to switch to other medications due to the above, and these may be zinc or triantine. So zinc prevents absorption of copper by stimulating a protein called metallothionine, which is found within the gut and binds to copper to prevent its absorption. But it's slow onset, so you need to continue copper chelating agents for two to three weeks. And the other one is the trientine. This is a copper chelating agent which binds and removes copper from the body. It's useful to those who are intolerant to penicillamine, and it sometimes is actually recommended as a first-line treatment. So those are the medical options for Wilson's disease. There are also surgical options, and this is basically a liver transplant. So liver transplantation is indicated for approximately 5% of patients with acute liver failure as the first presentation of disease, which is most common in the second decade of life, or those who present with end-stage liver disease and severe hepatic insufficiency, most commonly in the third and fourth decades. So liver transplant can restore normal biliary copper excretion and therefore present, prevent disease recurrence and promotes removal of copper from extrahepatic sites. And the outcomes of liver transplants are excellent. In terms of retreating any medically refractory neurological symptoms, then deep brain stimulation may be an effective approach in carefully selected patients. In terms of complications, well, cirrhosis is a frequent presentation and this can lead to liver failure, but liver cancer is very uncommon in patients with Wilson's. In terms of the prognosis, Wilson's is a prog progressive disease and it can be fatal if it's not treated properly, but early treatment will give the best results. And so if there's a family history, then screening may allow treatment to start within childhood before any onset of symptoms. And active treatment of early disease may lead to reversal of some neurological signs. Okay, so I think that brings us nicely to the end of this talk where we've spoken all about the rare condition called Wilson's disease. So just to recap, Wilson's disease is an autosomal recessive condition. The pathophysiology involves mutation of the ATP7B gene which is found on chromosome 13 and this gene encodes for a, an enzyme which is involved in the transport of copper across tissue, across cells. And as a result of this mutation, it leads to excessive copper buildup within organs. And the ones that are most affected are the liver, which can cause liver damage and potentially cirrhosis. And that has a number of uh, complications and presentations. And also the brain, which can cause some neuropsychiatric features. The way we diagnose it is through blood tests. So we look for the seroloplasmin level, which will be low. This is the copper carrying protein so because there's so much copper that's being deposit deposited in the tissues the copper in the serum is low and therefore the seroloplasmin level is low we also look at lfts which are deranged and we look for clinical features such as the kaiser fleischer rings which are very very common present in about 95 percent of symptomatic patients other things we can do are liver biopsies and MRI scans for the brain. And the way we treat it is with copper chelating agents, that's the medical treatment. If they don't work, then a liver transplant is an option. 
So thanks very much for listening, everyone. I hope you found this talk useful. Please remember to give us your feedback. You can drop a comment on the Apple Podcast platform or you can also either email us and our email address is hellomedtalks at gmail.com or send us a message on Instagram. Our Instagram is medtalks.uk. Share these episodes with your friends, peers and anyone else who might find them useful. And stay tuned, subscribe to our podcast channel. Stay tuned for lots more episodes upcoming and good luck with your revision and for your upcoming exams. I hope these episodes are helping you. Thank you for listening and all the best. Goodbye.